Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. All right, what's cracking, everybody? This is CJ Gustafson here on the Run the Numbers podcast, the first episode ever. Running a company is really fucking hard. I've now sat on both sides of the finance table, the one doing the funding and the one getting funded. And now I'm leveraging both perspectives to help ambitious people operating tech startups get the most from their funding, business model, and teams. My new show, Run the Numbers, is a collection of things I've learned and thought about in the trenches as a tech CFO as well as the things I wish I had known before going through it. And to be honest, shit that I'm still learning on the fly here with you today. So I'm super excited because I just interviewed Michael Tannenbaum, the COO of Brex. Three things that I came away with from our conversation is Michael's longevity as a CFO through multiple stages. I almost wanted to name this podcast Michael Tannenbaum, A Hard Man to Kill, but my producer Nancy would not let me do so. Michael has been able to go from the first ever hire at Brex to the COO of a $12 billion company. That's amazing to be able to grow and scale at the same pace as a hyper growth company. The second thing that I took away from the conversation is what he calls the hierarchy of needs that startups go through. He compared it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I thought was pretty dope. And you go from you know stage one needing food to stage two needing shelter. Instead of that, it's cash and hiring. And he put the startup's you know life cycle into perspective of what the needs are at that given time and it changes. And the third thing that I just can't stop thinking about now is risk. Risk in the sense of a CFO being the chief risk officer of a company and risk in terms of personal journey. Michael made it clear that you know his, his job is to manage risk for the company in those capital allocation decisions on behalf of the founders, the shareholders, the investors. And personally, he took a really big swing. He went from being a very important person at SoFi, which became a public company. And he left this sure thing to go to Brex, which was completely unproven at the time. And that that was a ballsy move, in my opinion. And in retrospect, he looks like a total genius. So I wanted to just segue and talk about how I think about risk really quick, because Michael kind of shook up my brain on it. And I've been trying to put it into my own words, and I'll, and I'll try here. And so I think of risk in two buckets. The first one is your responsibility as a CFO to be the chief risk officer. And what you're doing there is you're basically brokering the organization's appetite for taking risk between two kind of opposing parties and how they see risk. That's the board who's supposed to be, you know, steward of capital, have fiduciary responsibility, wants you to 10x but do it efficiently. And then founders who have made it to this point by saying, damn the torpedoes, damn the torpedoes, damn the torpedoes, so many times in their careers and taking these risks to get to this point um, that they just see things differently. And your job as CFO is to find your place on what Mark Hawkins, the CFO of Salesforce, called the risk frontier. So if you think back to economics class, which was my lowest grade ever in college, they had this axis. And on on the y-axis, it was guns. And on the x-axis, it was butter. And I think of it kind of like you got the board on one axis and founders on the other. And you're trying to find your own voice and position on that. And if you're able to talk to both parties and get them to a, an agreeable state, what really shakes out of that is called your operating plan. That's what you run the company on. 
So I've been thinking about how I manage risk and other people's perception of risk within my own org. The second thing I wanted to riff on is the concept of risk personally. And when you look back at your career, I want you to say, at what points did I think the floor was a lot lower than it really was? Michael left SoFi, which was a sure thing at the time. And I was thinking back on my career. I took a job right out of college at PwC. Huge org. They're not going anywhere. There was a template of how to rise in the org. Like it was a cookie cutter model of how to become successful and how to become a partner. And I think what I was afraid out of college is what other people would think about me. If I was able to land a brand name job, if I would be accepted by people who had already made, you know, great careers and had established themselves. And I was looking for lended credibility. I wanted to take a, a less risky path, which I'm glad I went there because I learned a lot about how to be a professional. They just you know, taught me how to write a good email and, and be a professional and talk to people and, and go to a dinner and not, and not say like the wrong thing. But I think in retrospect, I could have taken a bigger risk at that point. Like I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. The floor was a lot lower. If I failed... I would have went back to sleeping in my parents' basement. And I'm lucky in that aspect. You know, it's a heated basement too. Boston winters are cold. I, I would have survived. But I think I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't optimizing for the risk return of, of what would have been an okay decision at the time, given my own personal situation. So I'm now looking at risk personally in my career from a different perspective. And I actually had this friend who, you know, had taken a big swing at a hyper growth startup and he actually flamed out. He didn't, he didn't do well there. It didn't work. And I was grabbing a beer with him and I didn't want to bring it up at first because, you know, I'm like, this guy's licking his wounds. I don't want to rub it in here. And he brought it up himself and he said, Hey man, you know, I, I took a swing. It didn't work out, but I'd been the man. I'd been successful at four other companies before this. He said, I've accumulated risk capital that I need to cash in. And it didn't work. And I'll do it again. And he actually asked me, he said, when are you going to cash in yours? And I kind of sat there like, shit, like, have I taken enough risks? And I kind of look at, you know, leaving my last job to go to this one and become a CFO for the first time. That was a bit risky. Like I, I left some equity on the table. I, I left a known thing back when the economy was, was a little bit different. But I think he's right. We're all kind of building up risk capital. And it's up to you of when you want to cash in that, that chip, when you want to put it on the table and play. So listen to this conversation with Michael. I think he has an amazing story and, and he, he's really put some chips on the table and, and it's played out and there's a lot to learn. So thanks and let me know what you think. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the pod today. Thanks for having me. So I got to ask you, man, uh, I read this stat the other day, average CFO tenure at tech companies. It's surprisingly between two and two and a half years, which is shorter than what, what I thought it might be. You've been at Brex for over six years and through four or five funding rounds, if I'm counting that right. And I got to ask you, what's what's the key to staying alive in this game? What's the key to longevity and how have you been able to, you know, evolve with the company as it grows? Yeah, um, I think two things. One, just my experience is not typical in the sense that I was the first employee. And so typically you're not going to have a CFO that early at a company. But to just answer your question, I think the main thing for me has been uh, being pretty open to feedback and therefore kind of evolving as the company changes because just needs in a high growth company change really rapidly. And you kind of always have to be thinking of, of the future and what 
what you're going to need in maybe six to 18 months and bringing that forward and staying ahead of that. Otherwise, yeah, either, you know, you'll get tossed out or you'll toss yourself out. (laughs) And speaking about going through stages, you mentioned, you know, different life cycle phases for a company is, is there a hierarchy of needs that startups go through? I mean, you're also essentially the, the chief risk officer, right? Yeah. Well, so in general, I think the hierarchy of needs, which is like a psychological um, concept from Maslow, back to your question about longevity, I think that the hierarchy of, of every company's need, the bottom of that pyramid is going to be cash. And so I think that's something that I understood really well early, just because I came from SoFi, where I worked previously. And there we used a ton of cash, right? We were originating student loans and mortgages. And, um, you know, those loans were sometimes 10, 20, 30 years long. So that was like a cash heavy business where it was super critical. Uh, and then on the risk side of things, I have served as the head of risk at Brex, um, you know, in some capacity for the whole time. And I think that is a big challenge for CFOs. It kind of captures the overall challenge of, you know, working in a high growth environment, which is as you get bigger, you start to have more to protect. But in the beginning, you have nothing. So if you spend your time protecting everything that doesn't exist, you won't get anywhere and you won't have anything to protect. And so that balance is pretty hard to strike. And that's one of those things that, you know, is is definitely a challenge for people in the job. I love the Maslow's hierarchy of needs analogy there. It, It definitely feels real. Is is there a moment that you could take me back to where you feel like you guys changed levels at Brex, like going from, you know, stage one, I, I guess you, you, you said cash, maybe that's food, to going to like stage two shelter and you actually had something to protect? Yeah, I think um, stage, for me, stage one is sort of like cash, stage two is durable core business. Mm. Um, and I think uh, for Brex, that probably happened for for us in our series B just because our series B actually came prior to launch um and so we you know once we had we raised about 50 million dollars and that just because Brex is not that capital intensive that just gave us a lot of runway to really focus so that was actually pre-launch it took a lot of the pressure the financial pressure off of our launch i think for sofi it was maybe more interesting um because what happened was we raised a billion dollars actually from wow. SoftBank back before it was fashionable, right? That was pre-vision yeah. fund. It was like we it was crazy. And so if I went from this company where every single day I was waking up like praying that we would have <laughs> enough money because we were growing so quickly to um, you know, really being st- much more stable in the role. And then ultimately finding that I needed to go fix other problems in the company because I was so used to chaos that I couldn't operate in under normal calm uh, circumstances. Yeah. You, you kind of become comfortable in the chaos at, at a certain point, but I, I guess right. that chaos kind of changes from stage to stage as you were describing. And were there any moments where you landed a customer and you felt like that, Hey, that was market validation. Yeah, I think two examples from Brex. One wasn't a customer. It was actually a partner, which was First Republic, which is now owned by Chase. Um, But they wanted to distribute Brex early on. And I remember thinking, just because I had worked on the IPO and I was uh, an investment banker, 
back in the day, and I, I had a very big respect for the brand. Anyone who knows First Republic, you know, would know how well regarded they were. And so the fact that they were willing to work with Breck so early made me think that we were onto something. And then more recently, when DoorDash which is obviously a public global company, thousands of employees decided to use our expense management product Empower. That was pretty big validation uh, of what we were doing there. So for sure. That's awesome. So I I don't want to jinx you, but it seems like with Brex, you, you've made it out of the woods and you're, you're hitting escape velocity. What I do want to zoom back out and take a look at is your time before Brex. And you mentioned SoFi a couple times. And I'm kind of looking at this as the road not taken. And so you were at this high level, super impactful role at SoFi and that went on to become a successful public company. And then you went and just to reiterate, so people know you, you were the third employee at Breck. So it, it had a lot of hype, but it wasn't, you know, a sure thing yet. You know, in retrospect, I got to say, you look like a genius, but were there any times when you were making that leap from SoFi to Brex that you're like, this is a, a risky thing I'm doing? Yeah. I mean, j- just to be clear, it, it had no hype when I joined. It wasn't anything. It was just three people in a kitchen uh, in the Castro <laughs> in San Francisco that, you know, it wasn't even called Brex. It was two Brazilian entrepreneurs that were like nine years younger than me. I was 29. So it was kind of, it was crazy, you know, but I think what, when I went to SoFi, I was just hoping to learn how companies worked and to kind of like learn how to be an operator. I had come from the investment banking and private equity world. And so I ended up being more successful than I expected and um, certainly than I underwrote when I when I joined the company. And so I kind of joined, joined there with the plan to go somewhere else uh, always and kind of start something really early. And then this came along when I met Enrique and Pedro um, and you know, decided that this was an exciting enough opportunity to do that. But I was always going to be crazy because when I went to SoFi itself from from the private equity job that I was at, that was also considered crazy at the time. I remember one time I was in a pitch meeting pretty early on at Brex for something, and somebody was like, "Oh, you left SoFi for this?" And I was <laughs> like, oh. "Yeah, I did." I think everybody when they make a big career move kind of has that, oh shit, what did I do moment at, at some point or another. And you just got to kind of stick it out long enough to validate and and feel like, hey, I'm confident in my choice. Right. I got to ask too, what was the pitch that the founders gave you to join? Like what struck you to help you make that leap? I, I imagine it had to have been pretty compelling. Yeah, I think I had I had experience managing the credit card at, at SoFi. So I knew that there was this opportunity to combine software and expense management with the card. And I knew a lot of the pain points around like dealing with the corporate credit card, especially because, you know, there was all this politics of like who got one and where did yeah. the rewards go and all this stuff. And it's just it was a huge pain at the end of the month. We were chasing people. I'd have to get involved. And so I, when they said that, I was like, yeah, this definitely could be better. And um, I had learned that, you know, one of the things I've just learned about fintech is that the smaller loans or the higher volume transactions, those are the things that are better better disrupted. The, the larger, more expensive, you know, like a mortgage, for example, people are super focused on the rate, right? They have it for 30 years and it's yeah. a ton of money. So it's really hard to add tech to that because people ultimately just care about the rate, which tends to be where banks do well. So I think that's like one of the things that I was 
one of the frameworks I was operating under, which is like payments is a place where technology adds a lot of value. And so they they were successful and which was probably not true. They were like, look, you you can't hang around the hoop here. You either come now or you're out. And for whatever reason, I believe them. And then I was like, okay, well, I got to go now then. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash metrics that's netsuite.com slash metrics to get your own kpi checklist netsuite.com slash metrics it seems like you had if i'm hearing it right somewhat of an earned insight from being at sofi about a problem that existed you said hey this is real yeah that's right and just to stay on this for a second, because uh, a lot of the people listening are traditional SaaS CFOs and, and finance professionals and kind of that world. Do, do you have different liquidity considerations that other companies might not, like regulatory stuff that I'm not even thinking of? Can you describe some of the key differences between you know being a CFO of these two different business models? Yeah, I think for the finance or fintech model, usually there's some balance sheet component. So I think for a lot of people probably listening, you know, you could sort of evaluate a company almost entirely from its income statement. That's not true for most fintech companies. You need to see the balance sheet as well. And I think that part makes the job a little bit more complicated and it adds some of the risk that we talked about, risk management. And and from a regulatory perspective, you know, which goes into risk. It just means that you don't have full control over your funnel, right? There's usually requirements, KYC, underwriting, certain aspects of com- for a B2B company or consumer, certain people are not going to be eligible. Whereas, you know, your standard SaaS company, whether it's targeting consumers or businesses, you know, anyone who can pay is eligible. And oftentimes you're not even validating whether people can pay. You're just sort of invoicing them and some people don't. This has an impact on your TAM then in some ways, right? For sure. I think it does have an impact on your TAM, but the counter to that is you tend to have the the revenue streams are probably greater in fintech than they are in SaaS um, for a couple different reasons. But, but one of the biggest reasons is just that a lot of fintech models, Brex being one of them, you're not actually asking people to, to pay directly, right? You're either from the interchange ecosystem or the interest income ecosystem, you're not specifically saying, pay me for this thing recurring each month, or it's foreign transaction fees and things. So like, just it's it's a little bit different and the, and the profit pools tend to be larger. And if I'm hearing you right, some of those products actually, if 
appear free to the end they user, right? Right. They are they are free, at least for that user, but there is some other way. Obviously, there's no such thing as free, right? Um, yeah. So someone else is paying, paying for it, but it's not the person, it's not the user. And, and you see that in insurance as well. There's a lot of financial models where you see that. I'm a total dork when it comes to you know monetization models. And what you're describing is the ability to really stack different revenue streams from various parts of the ecosystem. And that in itself, I think, expands the TAM when you can charge all different parties. Right, exactly. That's really compelling. There are a lot more differences than I thought. I mean, I kind of you know made my name in the FP&A world coming up to CFO just by being really good at the P&L and forecasting that. But the balance sheet right. is an entirely different game. On the balance sheet component, you know, you probably use some of that for M&A. Can you walk me through just how you frame up the build versus buy versus partner decisions that, that come across your desk? Yeah, I think this is a tricky thing for smaller early stage companies and really anyone that's is a fast growing company because, you know, buying a company and we, we have this guy on my on my team, Marco Ronin, who's done a great job, um, you know, on the corp dev piece. And we can talk about that in a second. But I think what we found is buying is really hard because you really have to have an internal deal champion that is going to make this happen in addition to their day job. And there's just so much about integrating culture and integrating ways of work. That's just hard to do at an early stage company when so many other things are, are going around. So we tend to, well, we've done some acquisitions. I think our stance is more uh, look to partner, look to build, and buy being uh, an option that we tend to, to not look to as much, especially more recently, just because it has been hard. It's kind of a knife fight for talent out there. You see it with AI and a couple other sectors. FinTech is also one. Do you ever look at M&A as a way to acquire talent? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's, that kind of gets into the way you break down an acquisition, right? One way is to look for people, one way you're looking for product, and one way you're looking for business. I think people were absolutely doing that, um, and, we, and we will continue to do that. I think product if you do your diligence right, and we've done a few of those where like you care about the product, but not necessarily about the specific business or their monetization, you're looking at whether you can put that product into yours and either charge more or add features faster than you can build. That's the build versus buy. And then you get into business, which would be really rare for a company, certainly the size of Brex or smaller, where you're like, I guess, using financial engineering to sort of acquire an additional business and you're assessing that company based on its cash flows. And that's just hard to do when you yourself aren't profitable and aren't assessed on your cash flows. And I think that's the challenge. And Michael, you'd mentioned that you have a, it sounds like a, a dedicated corp dev team. Is that right? Yeah, I think we've been, it's been valuable because, you know, corp dev people are really smart, typically. I'm not, not all of them, but ours are. And so they're valuable because it's not just about like who to buy, but it's about the way we treat it is more about gathering market intelligence and sort of like strategy. So understanding the competitive landscape, having the conversations, understanding investor perception. So it's sort of like corp dev, investor relations, and PR in some ways all wrapped in one. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to steal a line from Art Levy from from Brex, but he said that, you know, corp Corp dev people kind of have a reputation at companies sometimes of like, you know, finding the bear, the deal, and then shoving it into the cabin and saying, hey, we're done now. Um, do, do you think that 
most M&A falls apart because say like the product team isn't involved to integrate it or like why does M&A fail? I think M&A fails because of people, you know, not it's typically so some sort of, yeah, cultural mismatch or just having it's hard to take a company, especially that was like smaller and excited and doing their thing and try to get it to do your thing. And so I think the leadership challenges tend to be what make it difficult. So it, it, it usually falls off the rails with the people, less so the product or even the revenue that you bring in house. I think so. It's a people thing. Right. I mean, companies are people, right? That's probably one of the biggest things that biggest differences from working in like investment banking or private equity versus working in a company is you're you're ultimately a company is about people, right? And managing the people and their drama and their needs and this and that. And that that's really the job versus say, like, I'm going to work at a consulting company and just like give ideas, right? But not have to deal with the people aspects. Yeah, I was talking to a friend who was on the investment banking side, and he's a he's a leader on the operating side now. And he was saying, after I shifted out of investment banking into an operator role, and I started to climb the ladder, my role became less of the person actually, you know, fingers in the keyboard, and more as almost a psychologist for my team and the people I manage, which I thought was a fascinating observation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, accurate in some ways. Yeah, especially when you're moving that fast, and people are moving in and out of different roles. Speaking of roles and people, I correct me if I'm wrong. I read somewhere that your father is also a CFO. He is. If he were here, he'd be, be glad to tell you about it. <laughs> so uh, you're taking over the family business, I guess. Yeah, or certainly following in his footsteps. What What did he say when uh, you know you told him, "Hey, hey, Dad, I'm a CFO now too" for the first time? Well, he actually, because it was such a small company, he was like, well, you're not really chief of much. There's only three people. <laughs> so, which was true. I think the thing for me is like growing up, he used to have all his, we had a pool and he'd have like a, an annual pool party and he'd bring his team over. And I kind of saw how he interacted with them and how much fun they were all having. And that's what I wanted when I was in, you know, that's what I kind of knew I wanted um, for myself. I, I saw, I really liked that aspect, you know, back to the people part. Um, I liked what he had and I definitely saw that missing in private equity. Obviously people spend careers in private equity and love it and, and good for them. Um, but that that part was kind of what I was looking for. So I did kind of grow up with him having that, those work bonds over years and I liked it. And where do you like to go to find talent, like you, you came out of this investment banking pool. Do you try to find people with a similar profile that you had? I think at the time when I was that age, graduating from college, that is certainly what a lot of people that were very ambitious were doing. But I think today, you know, I'm, I'm more probably open-minded about the types of people. It's more about a mentality. I think there's just some people who you can tell they really want to be great and they're looking for that opportunity, that chance to work with someone um, who's going to invest in them and just like give them opportunity and give them runway. And there aren't actually that many people that are le- either looking for that or willing to do that. A lot of people say they want a lot of things, right? But they don't, they're not willing to. And it kind of requires often going and jumping and doing something like I did, where, you know, if Brex had been Brex when I decided to come, it would have been 
you know, obviously a much easier decision. And so I think I look for people that, you know, and, and they reach out to me or I get introduced to them and they're like, look, I'm ready to go. I just want to run. I just want to uh, break out. And those people usually are leaving something behind, right? Most good people aren't just sitting on a beach waiting to be discovered. They're busy doing something else. And so it's through that process of those trade-offs and what people are giving up that you can learn whether somebody's serious about this. I, I like how you articulated that those really good people aren't just sitting around on a beach. Like they're probably doing something pretty damn cool also. And that's right. an underrated part of attracting talent. You have to convince them and sell them to to come right. to work for you. That's right. You've done a million roles, it sounds like, in addition to CFO. Do you feel like as you've come up the ranks, sales and selling has been a core tool in, in your toolkit that you have to rely on? Do you see yourself as someone who's always selling the company always, you know, trying to sell to talent? I think for, for ta from talent purposes, absolutely. Like I'm always, and it's probably annoying to some people, but, you know, within bounds of social acceptability, I'm always looking for people, even in my personal life, that seem motivated, ambitious, underutilized, and kind of reaching out to them afterwards saying, oh, you know, whether it's for, um, you know, Brex, of course, number one priority, and maybe a company that I angel invested in or know, I am doing that a lot because I think that, you know, that you have to spend time throughout your network, professional and, and social, gathering these relationships. Absolutely. Um, but I don't, in terms of actual sales, probably not, not necessarily, especially as Brexit has become more enterprise, you know, I don't really view myself as an enterprise salesperson. Do you think you still look for the same profile of talent now versus at the beginning of Brex or is it, has it changed? So I think more recently, actually, um, we decided to have me manage uh, legal and compliance, which I hadn't previously done. I was managing more like risk, but that's, you know, legal compliance as part of risk. And in doing so, I actually um, hired somebody, maybe a slightly different profile than I normally have, meaning normally I would go for someone that was like, you know, super... Uh, expert in financial services. A lot of the people that work with me have, you know, worked either as fake bankers or they worked at the Ernst and Young financial services practice, like really deep financial services expertise. Because so much of like fintech is that, especially in my world, versus say the product side where we're not trying to recreate the existing world. I think on the risk and finance side, we we more are business model that kind of stuff, and so. I went with someone who had, I think, really good leadership experience, um, really good risk management and tolerance and working with engineering experience, but not someone who was like a financial services expert that had like clearly worked within a, you know, banking or insurance practice at a big law firm. And that, that I think, you know, there were challenges for that, right? Just because of like knowledge gaps around regulation, knowledge gaps around compliance, but you know, and that was definitely more of a recent challenge for me to manage that. And he's, you know, he might hear this and, you know, I'm super glad we did because there's a lot of good that outweighed that, that bad. Yeah, totally. Totally. And the org structure, how that changes also impacts the type of people you bring on. Speaking of, you know, org structure, correct me if I'm wrong, but Brex has co-CEOs, right? They do. Yeah. So I'm lucky to have two bosses. How, what, break it down for me. What's it like having two bosses? You know... I think it just requires you to be a little bit more of a self-starter because 
Well, everybody at Brex internally, like we all report to Pedro, you know, we do have two bosses. There are, they are co-CEOs for a reason. And Enrique spends a lot more time externally, you know, sales, fundraising, partnerships. I think it just means that you have to, because there's not one person kind of supervising all that you're doing. It's just the onus is on you to really deliver across everything because you, you, there's no, per, there's not one person who sees, uh, you know, everything that you're doing. But I think, of course, the benefit is that you have people, you know, no person is going to be amazing at everything. And so you have two people that are very complementary with the highest you know, rank in the company that allows them a lot of leeway to run the business, which is really good. And when you talk about managing stakeholders, is is there ever a point, even there for six years, where you feel safe in your position when the company is growing and scaling this fast? Do you always kind of get those jitters before a board meeting? How How do you kind of think about the emotions that go into it? Yeah, I mean, I think you're in a fast-growing environment where a lot of people want to be in that seat. You know, you have to, you know, it's it's like anything, right? I remember everything good that I've ever done. I remember my parents when I was growing up, you know, they'd say like, look, a lot of people want whatever. So if you don't really want it, you're not going to get it, right? Because plenty more people really want it. You know, board meeting jitters. Yeah, like I'm always the night before, absolutely running through the deck, running through my numbers, making sure I have, because the reality is, you know, people judge you based, you know, in the CFO job for sure, uh, judge you based on, you know, how top of mind numbers are and how on top of the business you you seem to be. And so I am always running through that kind of the night before and then right before the meeting and I have my stuff, you know, ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's kind of like an athlete, like no matter what stage you get to, a big game's a big game and you're still going to want to prepare as much as you can. And, you know, probably those jitters are are good because it means you care at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I think caring is, you know, showing up is a big is a big part of life. Another big part of life that, you know, we, we don't always talk about is CFOs. You know, people think it's all flowers and daisies and revenue and up and to the right. But sometimes yeah. you got to make tough decisions and, um you know, one of the tough decisions that you made at Brex was you kind of shifted some of the customers that you worked with to concentrate on going up market. Can you walk me through how the team arrived at that decision? You know, what metrics you looked at to make a, a, a tough choice? Yeah, that choice was actually made in the in, in August of 2021. So around then we saw there was just a lot of existing customers for whom the product was not scaling. And we had all these small business customers, but our core customers that had been with us for a long time were getting bigger, growing, and needing more advanced expense management features. And so we had to make the call, like, you know, what do we do? Serve these really good customers that need more from us or expand much more broader? And we chose the former. But then in doing so, what that kind of meant is we weren't going to be investing in, in small business anymore. And we let that sort of go for a bit. But then when we had to migrate small businesses because of the, the infrastructure platform that we ran part of our bank on, our banking product on, that basically got bought by another company and it was being shut down. We just didn't want to migrate all these small businesses into a product that we weren't investing in. So we decided to pull the plug. You know, all these steps are super rational, right? Like when I'm talking about them, you're like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, I think it was just for us, probably in hindsight, what we could have done better is batch it 
And so like communicate it slowly to the market, get feedback on what what questions people had, understand, which is kind of like a rule of support. And I wish I had, you know, done what I know to be common sense in this specific instance, which is like, if you have 20,000 people that you're going to send a message to, maybe start with 200, <laughs> yeah. you know, they respond. And that, you know, I, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but that was just a kind of a mess that I wish, you know, we could go back and, and undo that for sure. It does sound logical on paper. I think, you know, what you run up against is people's perception is reality in a lot of instances and just how they perceived it. Yeah. Although, uh, on the upside, I said, as I said during that day, because I like to be funny, I was like, "Look, if this is probably the cheapest marketing campaign we ever did to let everybody know that we're not for small business anymore." So, yeah, it, it definitely worked. Certainly got that message across. Moving into what I call our long ass lightning round, just a uh, just a couple of quick hitters here. Can you give me an example of something that you've screwed up on the job? Sure. I mean, something early, early in my career that was unbelievably bad was I uploaded like a bid summary uh, into the data room on a transaction that I worked on. So I sort of like totally spoiled the transaction for a period of time. I was like, it was really late at night and I was working between two deals and uploading stuff. So that was like terrible. I mean, sort of classic, but like (laughs) I think most people don't do that in their life. It was terrible. That was really bad. I think more recently, I think that for a period of time, I promoted someone and I did not address the compensation up front. So I was like, oh, we'll solve comp later, but like we'll promote you now. Mm. And I think that opened up vulnerability because while it was kind of an internal promotion and I was like, you know, do the job and then we'll figure out the comp. I don't think that totally works. That's like more of an early stage company mindset. It worked for me. But it doesn't work for everyone, and I sort of over-anchored on my own experience. And then that person ended up leaving because they got a better offer and a much better offer. And I think that that, you know, I I should have dealt with that because that was that was definitely a, – that was on me, and that was a big mistake. That's a really honest assessment, and something like that has happened to me too. So th- thanks for, for giving us that. If you could tell your, your younger self something, you know, knowing what you know today, what, what would you tell them? I think I would tell that person, take more risk, right? There's so many people that, you know, I was fortunate, you know, I went to a good school, had like investment banking, all these things on my resume. And I was hemming and hawing about a lot of these decisions. And I think that, you know, I had so much to fall back on, right? And why not take a little bit of risk when you have all that? Not everybody has that, but I I did. And there are, of course, people listening that, that do as well. And so it's okay to take some risk because you have, you know, a lot of network and resume to fall back on. And I think I was more cautious than I probably needed to be. Yeah, I was the same way in my career. Um, can you walk me through some of the key components of your finance software stack? Like what, what do you use as an ERP? And uh, I guess like what's the most recent tool you may have bought? Yeah, I'm a big NetSuite guy. So I've kind of migrated both companies that I've worked at so far in Brex to NetSuite. Obviously, we use Brex for expense management and, you know, corporate card, which is great. Recently, we have started to use Pigment for FP&A tracking. That's probably yep. something more, more new. Um, that's probably the most recent thing we've bought. And we, you know, so far are excited. Shout out NetSuite. We love NetSuite as well. Good. Um, l- last one for you here. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense? Oh, well, 
I've had, I've seen someone try to do uh, sneakers, like they sneakers, they, like like yeah. basketball shoes. I don't know if they were basketball, tennis, or running because I didn't ask for any details. I just asked for the money back. But yeah. basically, it was like, oh, they were at an offsite, and then there's, there's some the airline like lost their bag, lost their bag, and they needed sneakers for the thing. And I, I was just like, no. How about you? Me, I had someone expend Super Bowl tickets once. Wow. Hey, I got to thank you, man, for for coming on the pod. This is yeah, this has been a blast, me. and and thanks for all the advice you've given people. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. See ya. Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.